Hey everyone, thank you so much for having me. It is a joy and a privilege to be able to join your church and to worship together. Now having said that, let me be very honest. I am very, very nervous. Why? Because for so long I've been told that there are two topics that human beings should not be discussing in public. One is religion and the second is politics. And it happens to be that my sermon today is about faith and politics. Happy me. Now, let me just be very clear first to kind of lay out the table. There's three things that I want you to realize before we read the scripture and then dive into our sermon. Number one, this sermon isn't going to encompass everything about faith and politics, in part because we only have 30 minutes. And so as a result, you may have more questions than answers, and that's okay. I hope that this sermon is a catalyst for more discussion. And number two, I want you to realize that it's not my intent to tell you who to vote for. As a pastor, I've made the decision never to try to strong arm my congregation about how or who they should vote for, but I do want to discuss about our ethics, about what should inform our voting and how we engage our call to be good citizens as followers of Jesus. And then lastly, the question that I do want to answer is this, does it matter? Does our faith and our politics matter? And my hope is that by the end of the sermon that you'll have a grasp how you would choose to answer that question. Now friends, if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you now to turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 10. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 10. Listen now for God's word. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. I want to pause here for a moment. The first or chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And specifically in this particular section, we're now entering a teaching called the Beatitudes. Here it says in verse 3, listen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, in a short bit, I'm going to spend some time trying to expound those particular verses that we read. But the first question that I want to pose to you is to simply answer the question, what is politics. The reason why is because anytime, particularly in the church, when we discuss the word politics, and not just in the church, even now in our larger society and culture, there is a tendency for us to cringe. 
I've heard on many occasions from other Christians who would warn we should never ever discuss politics in the church. So let's first put aside some of our baggage that we may have about politics and simply try to define what politics is. If you look on the internet, for example, according to the Webster's Dictionary, it simply defines politics in this way. Politics is the art or science of government. And whatever your political inclination may be, we should all agree that government is essential to a healthy, thriving society. In fact, most Christians believe that God created three institutions, family, government, and church. So aside from the fact that we may have some very twisted, wounded feelings about government, I want you to realize that it is essential and that's what politics is. Another way to define politics is the way that people living in groups make decisions. Politics is about making agreements between people so that they can live together in groups. Now, it sounds really good on paper. The challenge is we have people, groups, that have different worldviews and philosophies and ideologies. And the challenge is how do we experience a level of harmony so that flourishing could be possible for all people in our larger culture and society. Now, as I'm talking in this sermon, there are, I think, three groups of Christians as how we engage politics. Three groups within the church and how they engage with politics. Number one, there are some Christians that have completely disengaged from all things politics for lots of myriad and variety of reasons. Maybe they're exhausted, my hand is raised. Maybe they feel disillusioned, my hand is raised. Maybe they feel exhausted, my hand is raised. Maybe they feel paralyzed, my hand is raised. And it's also possible that there are some Christians that have chosen to disengage or maybe they've never engaged because of what I think is a dangerous theological construct that believes that we should only focus on spiritual things. Our quiet times, evangelism, missions, and obviously all of these things are very important, but there are some folks that believe that politics is not within the realm of our callings as followers of Jesus Christ. And so as a result, we're only called to focus on heaven and nothing else. I want to point out that certainly Jesus saves. As Christians, we should never abandon that message. But even during the last week of Jesus' life, we note that Jesus doesn't go straight to the cross on Calvary. In his final week, what we see in Jesus' life is that he confronts hypocrisy and corruption. He heals the sick and the blind. He welcomes people to the table, washes dirty feet. He teaches because we realize that while the kingdom of God, heaven is important, what we do in between is also very, very essential. The second audience is that there are some in the church that are just overtly obsessed 
about politics. We drink the Kool-Aid of politics 24-7. Now, I believe it's important, but I think there's a distinction when we become so obsessed with it that everything that we say or do is justified by our obsession with politics. In other words, it's grown to become idolatrous. The third thing that I'll say is that there are some Christians trying to be engaged, be faithful, have integrity, and I suspect that many of you might be in that particular boat that we know that politics matters, but especially in this combustible cultural context that we find ourselves in right now, we're wondering how do we stay engaged, be faithful, have integrity, and as followers of Jesus, try to be good citizens here on this earth. Well, what I would share with you is First is to convey that politics matter. Now, we'll get into more of the nitty-gritty stuff, but I want to share with you that politics matter. The reason why it matters, friends, is because politics informs our policies that influences people. And the last time I read the Word of God, the last time I opened the Scriptures, God cares about people. And more specifically, He cares, yes, about everyone, but He cares about those who are oppressed or marginalized, the hungry and the poor. He cares about the vulnerable. And as the people of God, we are called to care for the things that God cares for. This is the reason why I think the Beatitudes is so important. The Beatitudes gives us a glimpse of a framework for the kingdom of God. It gives us an imagination about the kingdom, about the ethics of Christ. For example, theologians believe that in the scripture verses that we just read today, that you could separate verses 3 to 6 and verses 7 to 10. Verses 3 to 6 speaks about those who are marginalized or vulnerable. And verses 7 to 10 speaks to those who choose to come alongside, who chooses to dignify, who chooses to stand in solidarity with those who might be forgotten or oppressed. This is the reason why as we're thinking about the kingdom of God, we have to remind ourselves that our politics should never be hijacked by politics, but rather our theology should be that which informs our politics and not the other way around. This is why Jesus explains to us that the greatest commandments to love God and to love neighbor, this in itself is our framework, not just for politics, but in essence, the way that we live our lives. And when we're speaking about loving our neighbors, we're speaking about loving those that aren't just like you, look like you, feel like you, worship like you, think like you, and dare I say, even share the same politics as we do. To be a follower of Jesus, then and even now, 
is not for the faint of heart. This is the reason why when we speak about the gospel, about a framework of what it means to believe in the whole gospel, we have to never be timid about sharing the good news that Jesus loves you, that Jesus loves every single human being, that every single person bears the image of God. And as a result, may we never grow weary in sharing the good news that Jesus saves. He saves sinners like you and me, that Jesus is Lord, that He comes to rescue sinners and save sinners, that God delights in women and men and children coming to know that Jesus is Lord. So yes, I pray that we would never be timid about sharing that good news. But if we're not careful, if we reduce the gospel only to a salvation message and not a larger holistic imagination of the kingdom of God, I am worried and concerned that we're actually giving people a partial gospel, a limited gospel, and therefore actually a false gospel especially in a very hyper-individualized Western consumption culture. It's very possible that our worship, our theology, becomes very much about me, myself, and I. This is the reason why we can hold the good news that Jesus saves, but that Jesus also cares about collective human flourishing. In other words, to Jesus, we believe that the world matters, that justice matters, that reconciliation matters, that black and brown bodies matter, that migrant lives matter, the poor matters, the oppressed matters. I know that it's not politically correct to say this, but I will say it, the unborn matter to God. Every Me Too story matters. Every person that's been affected by the coronavirus, not just American lives, but all around the world, it matters to God. Some of you, just by listening to this, maybe you're cringing because you feel like I'm giving you a particular political ideology. What I'm suggesting is that may we have faith that allows our theology rooted in the scriptures and the person of Jesus, may that be that which informs our politics and every other thing that we engage with in our life. For some Christians who believe that Christians shouldn't be political, I would suggest to you that the words, Jesus is Lord, especially during the time of the early church, that in itself, Yes, it was a dangerous statement, but it was particularly a dangerous political statement that spoke against the pervasive words that Rome, that Caesar, that Nero, that empire was Lord. So yes, I would agree that as Christians, we should never, never obsess about politics, but I do want to urge you that politics matter because politics inform policies that influence human people. So how do we do this? So this is the place where I'll tell you we don't have enough time to go into all of these things. And this is not my way of trying to promote my book, but in my book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics, I share 
10 practical ways that Christians should be engaging and embodying in their lives. So let me first just read through these 10 things. And with our limited time, I want to share about five more specific ways that I speak about in these 10 chapters. Chapter number one, thou shalt not go to bed with political parties. Two, thou shalt not be a jerk. I'm looking at you. No, not you, the other person. Number three, thou shalt listen and build bridges. Thou shalt be about the kingdom of God. Five, thou shalt live out your convictions. Six, thou shalt have perspective and depth. Number seven, thou shalt not lie, get played, or be manipulated. Number eight, thou shalt pray, vote, and raise your voice. And number nine, thou shalt love God and love people. And finally, number 10, thou shalt believe Jesus remains king. Now, friends, let's dig into a handful of these things. I want to share five things, if I may. The first one, if you're taking down notes, I want to encourage you to write down the words cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity. Now, in the church, when we're speaking about things that serve as threats to the church, our tendency is to always look outward to look at maybe the dangerous things over there, maybe secularism, maybe whatever it might be, we tend to look outward as things that pose as threats to the church. And as a result, our inclination then is to form our holy huddles, build a moat around the church, and then try to protect ourselves. Now, I would submit to you respectfully that in my opinion, that the greatest challenge is not out there. The greatest challenge, in my opinion, is actually within Christianity. It's the temptation to build the structures and institutionalism of Christianity, but without a parallel commitment to Jesus Christ. It's politicians and even Christian pastors and leaders who sprinkle on a pinch of Jesus into our thinking speeches or sermons, but often in a way that fulfills our agendas or goals. In other words, using Jesus to promote our branding or platform, or worse, our nationalism. This is the danger of cultural Christianity that eventually and predictably produces cultural Christians rather than disciples of Christ. From a political perspective, cultural Christianity is when our theology is held captive by our politics rather than our politics being informed and even transformed by our theology. The danger of this predicament takes us back all the way to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were tempted to be like or even to be God. In other words, the oldest sin in humanity has been to conform God into our image. So as we read the scriptures, if we're never offended, convicted, disrupted, or stirred by the Holy Spirit, it's quite possible that we've conformed Jesus into our own thinking, liking, and image. 
So what are the dangers and implications of cultural Christianity? Imagine a Christianity that conforms to a culture and all of its shifts and changes and no longer adheres to the scandalous, radical, love, grace, teachings, and life of Jesus Christ. Imagine an institutional Christianity that's obsessed with power, influence, and platform, again, without a commitment to the countercultural commitment of Jesus Christ, a commitment to empire rather than the kingdom of God. How else, friends, could we explain what transpired in Germany with the rise of Hitler and Nazism? In Germany, at the start of World War II, some historians report that up to 94% of the nation were professing Christians. How could there be such dissonance except to acknowledge the ills and poison of cultural Christianity? How else could we explain why so many would profess to be Christians and yet choose to become seduced by the evil propaganda of Hitler? But it wasn't just merely in Nazi Germany. We witnessed this actually throughout history when Christian institutions go to bed with power and then embody practices that are antithetical to the gospel. This was evident, for example, when religious leaders used erroneous theology to dismiss and judge the poor in the book of Amos. This was evident when missionaries engaged in horrific practices of colonization and abuse of power with Native American boarding schools in my home state of Washington. During the summer of 2019, I was invited by a Christian organization to lead a small group of American pastors to travel to Rwanda for the purpose of listening and learning about truth-telling and confession and forgiveness and justice and reconciliation from Rwandan citizens, activists, and pastors. Now, you might be asking, why Rwanda? Tragically, the people and nation of Rwanda experience what has often been referred to as the Rwandan genocide, an unfathomable genocide in 1994, where for about 100 days, approximately 1 million total Rwandans were killed, including more than 800,000 minority Tutsis at the hands of extremist Hutus. Now, the reasons are incredibly complex. But what's not complex is that Rwandans killed Rwandans. Family killed family. Neighbors killed neighbors. Even some husbands killed their Tutsi wives. Christians killed fellow Christians. What makes this tragedy even more incredulous is that during this time of the genocide, both ethnic groups were predominantly Christian as over 90% of the Rwandan population claimed and still claims adherence to the Christian faith. During this time, last year, I'll never forget the conversations that we had with Rwandan activists and pastors. They gave me and the other pastors a stern warning about the dangers of placing any allegiance 
above our obedience to Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. In essence, the dangers of cultural Christianity. Here's number two. Don't go to bed with political parties or powerful politicians. Friends, I'm not suggesting that you can affiliate with a particular party. I'm not suggesting that you can't donate to someone's campaign. I'm not suggesting that you can't join and volunteer. I'm simply saying, ultimately, we should never be seduced so that we stop thinking and engaging in critical thought, discourse, and prayer about why we believe in what we believe. Now, as someone who's written a book about faith and politics, the most pervasive question that I get is, Pastor Eugene, are you a Republican or a Democrat? Are you a conservative or liberal? And my honest answer is not that I'm trying to be circuitous in my answer. My honest answer is, on what issue? On what issue? Meaning, I truly believe that there is not a single party or politician that can encapsulate what I believe to be the kingdom of God as embodied in the person of Jesus and as attested in Scripture. And so as a result, when I first became a Christian at the age of 18, I was told very clearly, if you're a good Christian, you must vote Republican. Don't ask questions. And interestingly, now in our current year, especially living in the great Northwest, I live in Seattle, I hear the absolute opposite with the same kind of vitriol. If you're a true Christian who believes in justice, you must vote Democrat. And so as a result, what ends up happening is that to some, you're just too conservative. To others, you're too liberal or progressive. And I firmly believe, as challenging as it may be in our world today, to be a Christ follower is to be faithful amid tension, to stay engaged, to remain hopeful, to love anyway, to walk with integrity, and to bear witness to the love, mercy, and grace of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, please don't misconstrue what I'm saying. I'm not suggesting that we apply to have no convictions, to be soft. I think we should be bold and courageous, but even in the midst of all of these things, we'll find ourselves in tension. Stay engaged, remain hopeful, love anyway, walk with integrity, and bear witness to Jesus Christ. Here's number three. Don't just vote. Now, friends, I truly believe voting is a privilege. And I do believe that Christians should vote. And while I do know that there are non-Christians and Christians who for a variety of reasons may choose not to vote, I think it is an important duty as followers of Jesus to seek to be good citizens here on this earth. So as we vote, my encouragement is don't just vote. In other words, if we reduce our citizenship here on this earth 
to one vote every four years, and then you get a sticker and you apply it to your jacket and then take a selfie to tell people that you're a good person, I would suggest to you that we're actually part of the problem. It's the same thing about our faith. If we reduce our walk with Jesus to a 60-minute worship service, and that's the totality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, there's a dissonance. In the same way that church isn't an hour service, in the same way that church isn't a building, being a good neighbor is not just one vote every four years. Being a good neighbor is not just putting on a I voted sticker. To be a good neighbor is at the core of what it means for us to be followers of Jesus. And it's something that we do every single day. Beyond national elections or state elections, how we choose to befriend and engage literally our neighbors in the same way that we care about global missions, we've got to cross the street. You cannot love your neighbors if you don't know your neighbors. We need to care about our local schools, our local issues. We need to care about issues of hunger and homelessness. We need to care about flourishing in our respective neighborhoods and cities. Friends, here's number four. Number four is this. Keep fellowship and unity in the church. Now, I wish I had more time to go into this, but... It's a very challenging time in our nation and frankly all around the world. And I know that many of us are wrestling with how do we remain a level of relationship and friendship. And I think this is where the church has something to offer to our larger society and world. The church has the capacity to bring people to the table of God. One of my most favorite elements and maybe the most important aspect I think of church is when churches welcome people and we celebrate the Lord's table together. I love the Lord's table because it's a reminder to us that no matter what happens at a church, even if the announcements aren't all that great, even if the worship set is a little bit off, even if this sermon might not be quite to your liking, the reality is we will always end on good news when we remind people of the Lord's table that Jesus Christ went to the cross, died for our sins, invites us into a relationship with Him to be a part of the kingdom of God. This crucified Jesus is risen and Christ is not yet done. He is coming back one day to restore all things. And this is the reason why when we serve communion, we have to remind people we don't have a line on your left that serves juice for those lefties and progressives. We don't have a line on the right that serves grape juice for our conservative Christians. And we don't have a line in the center, the gluten-free option for the soft independence. The Lord's table is able to welcome all. And the Lord's table is such that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is such 
that Christ loves us where we are, but also loves us in such a way that the Holy Spirit is informing and transforming each of us. Friends, be careful not to dehumanize those you disagree with. In our self-righteousness, we can become the very things we criticize in others. In other words, friends, I'm all for contending for convictions, but let's not be jerks in the process. Be respectful, be mature, be wise. Hear this well, the world doesn't need more jerks for Jesus. Friends, the last thing that I'll share is that we need both personal change and structural change. Now, as a pastor, the most pervasive thing that I often hear from people is this, Pastor Eugene, I disagree with you, it's a sin issue. It's a heart issue. If hearts change, then everything changes in the world. Now, obviously, I believe it's a sin issue. But in addition to sin, I sometimes wonder if we're diminishing the power of systemic and institutional evil in our larger world. Now, I want to introduce a photo here in this sermon. It's a very graphic photo, and I want to give you a warning, especially for those who are black and brown in your respective congregation. It's a photo from the 1960s or 50s from the Jim Crow era. And it's a photo again that I sometimes don't share, but I wanna show this to explain the difference and the importance of both heart, but also structural change. Here's the photo. This photo is jarring, absolutely jarring, because you see all of these individuals, hooded and non-hooded, standing in front of a church altar with those words that we would construe as true and good news that Jesus saves. You see, you might think if only these hearts if only these individual hearts would change, and while that is a good thing to pursue, just because we remove someone doesn't diminish that there is a culture, a system that's evil or demonic that we need to not only confront, but also change. Did you realize that, for example, in the United States, between 1882 and 1968, 4,742 people were reported lynched in this particular country. 99% of cases, the perpetrators escaped punishment. Some of you might be wondering, well, that was long, long time ago. But if you were to just examine our respective world today, whether it's the story of George Floyd, whether it's the story of Ahmaud Arbery, whether it's the story of Breonna Taylor, whether it's the story of housing covenants in our respective cities, and the list goes on and on. I live in a town called Ballard in Seattle. And in my town, up between 1910s and 1960s, we had many Seattle neighborhoods that practiced overt racist exclusions. 
For example, in my neighborhood, it had these instructions and housing covenants, quote, no part of said property hereby conveyed shall ever be used or occupied by any Hebrew or by any person of the Ethiopian, Malay, or any Asiatic race. You see, hearts do need to change, but this is the reason why we need both the importance of the church, but the importance of healthy, compassionate, just politics to be able to work together so that there is flourishing in our larger society and beyond. The last thing that I'll just share is to simply say that this work is not possible alone. And so it's a reminder for us that we must always be the people of God, seeking God's presence, God's guidance, and the move of the Holy Spirit. And so it's my prayer for each and every single one of you that even though it's incredibly messy and it will always be messy until that day that Jesus comes back, don't shy away, don't look away, let's stay engaged, let's be faithful, let's have integrity, and let's engage politics, not because it's the answer or the only answer, but it is one way for us as followers of Jesus in a fallen world to try to love our neighbors and to love God. God bless you.